You know, I just mentioned baptisms are coming up, and that reminds me of an important date in the date of our family, which is May 22nd, 2011. May 22nd, 2011 is a day that I stood in uh, the baptism waters that are right behind uh, the curtain here, and I got the privilege of baptizing our daughter, Kirsten. And as a dad, you know, those are one of those moments, as, uh, as her parents, it's one of those moments that we'll just never, ever forget, being able to stand in the waters with her, to listen to her testimony as she gave it to the church, to see her desire to stand in front of everybody and profess her faith in Jesus. Obviously, that will have a special place in my heart uh, as long as I live. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a story of another baptism, and for the people involved in this baptism, it had great significance for them as well. In fact, so important is the baptism of Jesus that all four of the gospel writers write about it. Obviously, that doesn't happen all the time, and so for them to all write about this one event, there has to be some significance from it, and we want to learn about it. In fact, I'll just mention real quickly here, we're entering into a little section the next two weeks of the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to be looking at some of the most theologically rich portions of Scripture. Jesus' baptism, his genealogy, we're going to touch on that today, and then next week we're going to talk about his temptation. These texts are considered by theologians to be super important, especially for what Luke is wanting us to see. And the reason is Luke uses these stories to reveal to us some very important things about who Jesus is and why he came. So part of what I want to say to you this morning before we dive into the text is we're going to be heading into some pretty deep waters this morning. You just need to prepare yourself, put your thinking cap on, because we're going to lay a really important foundation on the life of Jesus Christ. If you don't want to know what I'm talking about, we just started a couple of weeks ago a new series in our church family called The Life of Christ as we're walking through the book of Luke together. And really the whole point of this series, we felt led to do it, was because we wanted to spend significant amount of time with Jesus in 2016. I mean, we always want to spend time with Jesus, but we really wanted to delve deep into his life. As Jeff mentioned in the first week of this series, we want to talk about the words that Jesus spoke. These are some powerful words. We want to look at the works that Jesus did, but maybe more than any of those, we want to look at the way that Jesus lived his life. And if you take notes, we've been saying it this way there, we want to be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Listen. If the goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, and the writers of the New Testament suggest it is, then what better to do than go to the source, right? Let's go to Jesus himself to find out how to live. I would love to play golf like Jordan Spieth. If you don't know who that is, he's the best golfer in the world right now. Now, it'd be one thing if I could read magazine articles about how Jordan Spieth plays golf, or if I could talk to somebody who's seen Jordan Spieth play golf, but how much better if I could actually go to the source and spend a day with Jordan Spieth, learn from him, hear how he talks about golf, get a lesson from him, watch how he goes about his business. Friends, in the same way, if the goal of my life is to be like Jesus... Let's go to Jesus. And that's why we're doing this study in the Gospel of Luke for a good part of this year. And this morning we come to the story of his baptism. And so I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn it with me to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. 
We mention this every week, but there are Bibles we have. If you didn't bring your own Bible, we have some available for you, either in the seat in front of you or maybe right underneath you. There are the black Bibles there, and you can find Luke 3 on page 717. We'd love for you to follow along with us. As you're turning there, let me just set the stage, because last week, Pastor Jeff talked about um, Jesus as a young boy, and we're kind of skipping up to Jesus' baptism here. And the reason for that is, is starting in chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to a person by the name of John the Baptist. John is related to Jesus, and John was given a special call in his life. John's whole purpose was to prepare the way for the coming of Messiah. You see, as of yet, in the Gospel of Luke at least, Jesus hasn't revealed himself to the people yet. They don't know that Messiah is here yet, but John has shown up on the scene and he begins preaching to people that Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. We need to be ready to receive him. And some of you know this, but he did this by preaching what's called the the preaching of repentance. The need for repentance, right? Repentance just means turning away from your lives of sin and turning towards faith in God. And as an outward symbol of this act of repentance, John would take people and he would baptize them in water in the Jordan River. Baptism and the fruit that came from walking with God faithfully, he preached, that's what really makes a person right with God. Not the fact that they may have been born Jewish, which they thought was enough, right? That's just enough. I'm born Jewish. That's enough for me to be made right with God. But John comes on the scene and says, no, listen, Messiah's coming, and we need to make ourselves ready. And that involves a baptism of repentance. And so many people came, and they heard John preach, and they were baptized. Some even began to wonder, maybe he was the one they'd been waiting for. Maybe he's the savior that they were hoping would come. But John himself denies this. In fact, look at what he says in Luke 3.16. If you've turned there, you can just follow along in your notes. If not yet, it's up on the screen. It says, John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so that sets the scene for what comes next in the life of Christ. I want to invite you to read verses 21 and 22 out loud with me, printed on your notes. But I want to warn you, they're flipped upside down. Verse 21 is below verse 22. And the reason for that is how I want to break down this text this morning. But let's read verse 21 out loud there. It says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Now look up to verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, I don't know what goes through your mind when you come to this text. When I was younger and I would read this text, the very first question I always asked was, why did Jesus need to get baptized? I mean, if this was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, what is Jesus doing being baptized? From Matthew's account of the story of the baptism, it's clear that John wondered the exact same thing. In fact, keep your finger there in Luke and turn just two books over to the Gospel of Matthew. Let's just look at his account of how he describes this day. It's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, page 676, if you're using those black Bibles. One of the benefits of all four of the Gospel writers writing about it is that we can fill in some of the details. Verse 13 of Matthew 3 says... 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And the rest goes on to describe the actual baptism. So go back to Luke, because that's what we're going to be looking at together. I want to propose to you this morning that in this passage, we learn two very important things that we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. The first thing, as I mentioned, that this is such a theologically important passage, is we're going to learn some really important stuff about Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity is finally revealed. You know, he hasn't come on the scene yet, but in his baptism, his identity is revealed. And we're also going to learn about how Jesus chooses to live out that identity. In other words, he is baptized in order to show us something about himself, something that will, quote, fulfill all righteousness, as Matthew said. So let's take a look at those two things. First, what does Jesus' baptism reveal about his identity? A couple of significant things happen in just these two verses that reveal Jesus' true identity. As I mentioned, John was preaching that the Savior was soon to come. Jesus hadn't revealed himself yet. And so this event is essentially God's way of saying, he's here. The one you have been waiting for is here. Some of you remember the old game show, I Might Be Dating You, What's My Line? where a panel of judges would be asking questions of a famous person. They didn't know who it was, but they were trying to guess who this famous person was by getting clues from this famous person. Well, this isn't so much a clue here. God's not really making this a mystery. In a booming like megaphone, he's like, he's here. The one you've been waiting for, Messiah, he's come. The one John has been preaching about, the one you have been preparing for, he's here. The first thing that gives this away is the descending of the Holy Spirit. Let's just be clear, friends. This does not mean that before this moment, Jesus didn't have the Holy Spirit in his life. We know from Luke chapter 1, verse 35, that he was from the Holy Spirit since his conception. What then is this saying? This is the Father's way, this is important, the Father's way of anointing Jesus and publicly declaring him as Messiah. He is anointed by the Spirit. Now, some of you may know what I'm talking about a little bit here, but in the days of the kings, how was it that a new king was confirmed? How did they know who the next king was? Somebody would take a jar of oil and they would pour it over the king's head to signify their new status as a king. You can read about this with the prophet Samuel, right? He anoints Saul first as king, and then when Saul loses that, he anoints David as king. He does that with oil. Now, in the book of Isaiah, we're told that when Messiah comes, and guess what Messiah means? Anointed one. When the anointed one comes, he will come from the line of David, so he's going to be a king. And he too is going to be anointed, but his anointing isn't going to be with oil. He will be anointed with the very Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit's Appearance descending upon Jesus like a dove is God's way of saying his plan of salvation rests on this person. The long-awaited king has at last 
come. If you're wondering who Jesus is, this moment says it all. He has been anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of speculation, and I'm one of these people who likes to ask like, questions like, what's the deal with the dove? Right? Like, why does Luke describe this experience as a dove descending down on Jesus? In Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts, he describes the Holy Spirit coming down on the disciples like tongues of fire. Some people think that the dove refers to Genesis chapter 8 when Noah sends out a dove from the ark and the dove returns bearing good news in the form of an olive branch, right? Like the land is dry. You can leave the ark now. And some have suggested, right, Jesus' whole purpose, he's about to enter into his ministry. His whole purpose for ministry was to be a bearer of good tidings, a bearer of the good news. Other people have speculated that this was a way to just simply connote the way that Jesus would go about his ministry. Doves still today are known as gentle and peaceful animals. And all throughout the Gospels, we notice that that kind of character characterized the way Jesus interacted with people, right? Especially those who were on the fringes of society. We're going to see this again and again. He tells his disciples, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. But personally, I think, again, friends, the main point that Luke is making is simply this. The Holy Spirit isn't an abstraction. It's not like a jolt of lightning or an infusion. I mean, we sometimes have a hard time picturing what this whole thing looks like. It's a real thing. He is a real thing. He comes to Jesus as a real thing. Luke's trying to find words to describe what this must have looked like. But the point is... Everybody who was there, who was present, saw that this person had been anointed. Just as Isaiah had predicted 700 years earlier, he had been anointed not with oil, but with the very Spirit of God. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the empowerment and sign of Jesus' identity. It marks him for his future ministry. He is the anointed one, and he is being empowered by the Spirit to fulfill his mission. So that's the first thing that gives it away. The second thing that gives it away, of course, is these incredible words that come from heaven. The Father speaks from heaven saying, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. How's that for an affirmation of identity? In case you were, in case you were wondering, you know, as the Holy Spirit's coming down and descending on him, in case you were wondering, here's my son, whom I love, and I am well pleased. Now, something you and I don't realize because we are not Jewish, but the early readers of this book, or if you were hearing this story as a Jewish person, you would have immediately realized that when that voice from heaven speaks, he is quoting two passages of scripture to Jesus. He is quoting Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42. Every Jewish reader would have immediately recognized the phrase, you are my son as a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Again, I'm telling you, we're laying a foundation here, right? Every Jewish person looked to Psalm 2, and we still look at it today as one of the main texts in the Old Testament that describes the coming of the Anointed One, Messiah. And the the coming of this Messiah is described in Psalm 2 as going to come as this powerful king. He's going to take all nations and he's going to put them under his feet and he is going to rule over them in power and might and authority. And right in the middle of this incredible psalm, we get this verse in verse 7 that says, you are my son. So if you're wondering who the king is, who this conquering king is, who's going to put all nations under his feet, 
It's going to be the very Son of God. So what do you think God is, the point here is? Here he is. My son has come. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is the king you've been waiting for. Now, here's what's interesting. The second half of this verse, as I mentioned, is a quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which, look it up at the screen, it says this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And Psalm 42 goes on, as well as, excuse me, Isaiah 42 goes on, as well as Isaiah 46, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53 to describe this person, this mysterious figure in Scripture who becomes known as the suffering servant. These are all very famous passages. Now listen, this is a completely different place in Scripture, right? Psalms and Isaiah, totally different time, talking about totally different things here. Psalm 2 is talking about a conquering king. Isaiah 42 is talking about this suffering servant who is going to be sent by God someday to suffer on behalf of his people. A person who is going to bear the sin of the human race on his back so that we might be healed from our fallenness. Isaiah 53, and again, if you're just getting used to the Bible and important places, this may be one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. We'll read a little bit of it, but listen to how the suffering servant is described here. See if you recognize him at all. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. Sound familiar? Over 700 years before Jesus. The rabbis and the scholars and the students of this day, they knew Psalm 2. They were expecting Psalm 2. They were waiting for the conquering king. Especially now that they had been occupied by Rome. They were waiting for somebody to come and overthrow the Roman rule. And they also knew about Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 46 and Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. But listen, and here's the point I want you to get this morning. Nobody in their right mind thought they could be the same person. There's no way that a conquering king could be subjugated to weakness and humility and death and rejection and suffering. That's ridiculous. How could anybody do that? If you don't believe me, all you need to do is look at the disciples' reaction every time Jesus brings up the subject of his suffering. What do they do? Peter rebukes him at one point. What are you talking about? You're the Psalm 2 conquering king. Think about Palm Sunday, right? Everybody's going crazy. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. What are they expecting him to do? They're expecting him to be the Psalm 2 king, to come and conquer their enemy, to conquer Rome. But Jesus had a much bigger enemy to conquer. He came to conquer death. And in order to do that, he must be the king who was also the suffering servant. And the purpose of Jesus' baptism is to show us that Jesus brings together these two incredible prophecies. 
He is the conquering king, and friends, we know that one day he will rule the earth. All nations will bow before him under his feet, but he is also the suffering servant first. And he conquered the greatest enemy, death itself. So listen, in this one little sentence, the voice of heaven speaks, Jesus' Father speaks to him, his identity and his purpose. Don't ever think that the cross came as a surprise to Jesus. The very moment he steps onto the stage, his father says, you are my son, you are the king, and you will rule one day in all authority and power with whom I, whom I love and with I am well pleased. But you're the suffering servant. And Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, and he walked towards that cross. The cross doesn't come as a surprise to him. It's who he is. It's why he came. He is God's agent of redemption. He is the suffering king for all mankind. And so the purpose of this section in Luke is to show us that the rescuer has at last come, but he just hasn't come in the way we expected or even the way we wanted. In fact, I think this is why Luke follows Jesus' baptism with his genealogy. Look at Luke 3.23, if you still have your Bible open. It says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. That's like a wink, wink, right? We know whose son he really is. We just heard it. We just heard the voice from heaven say it. Now, it's interesting. Luke goes on to now give Jesus' family line. But unlike Matthew, Luke doesn't stop at Abraham. Matthew's purpose was to show that he was the fulfillment for the Jews. But Luke takes the genealogy all the way back to the beginning. Look at verse 38. It says, he is the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Again, so theologically important. What is Luke's purpose here? He's trying to show us that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the author of a new humanity. He is the true son of God. Adam is called the son of God, but he fails in his sonship. So here comes the true son of God to redeem and reconcile people, not just the people of Israel, but from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. He is the substitute that we needed for all of Adam's race, all humankind. And the way he's going to go about doing that, the way he's going to rescue us, is as a suffering king. This is my son, whom I love, and with, I am, with who I am well pleased. Even before his ministry began, Jesus knows what lies ahead. Everything is at stake for us as the human race. Is the new Adam going to do what the first Adam couldn't do? You're going to have to come back next week and find out in his temptation. In the biz, we call that a hook, right? But until then, let's step back and ask the question, which we're going to ask a lot in this series, what do we learn about the way of Jesus in his baptism? Again, if our purpose is to learn from Jesus in order to be like Jesus, what do we learn from Jesus here? Now, i got to be honest with you. I struggle with this question this week because this is such like an informational text, right? I mean, it's laying theological foundations. I'm going like, what do we learn about the way of Jesus in this text? Until all of a sudden, a tiny little word started standing out to me on the pages of Scripture. It's this word, too. T-O-O. It means also. It's found in verse 21, as in, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized, too. 
I started this morning asking the question, why did Jesus get baptized when he really didn't need to? He didn't need to repent. We're given the answer here. The reason Jesus was baptized is because he wanted to fully enter into our humanity. Jesus wasn't God pretending to be a human being. He actually became fully human. Jesus wasn't baptized because he was a sinner in need of repentance, but as a way of fully identifying himself with Adam's race, with all of humankind. If you're following on your notes, Jesus was not baptized, was baptized not because he needed it, but to identify with us fully. I find it fascinating as Jesus begins his ministry, instead of going to Jerusalem, which you would have thought he would have, and identifying himself with the established religious leaders of the day, Jesus instead went to a dirty river in the middle of nowhere and identified himself with people who were coming to repent of their sin and turn to God. Jesus was baptized not because he needed it, but because he was obedient to the will of his Father. You see, he knew that it was only by fully identifying with our condition that he could undo what Adam did and thus, as Matthew said, fulfill all righteousness. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 18 and 19. And again, these are some foundational texts. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, whose trespass was that? Adam and Eve's. So also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. That's our condition. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus entered into the sin of his people as the son of God and as the son of man. Fully God, fully human, because that's the kind of savior we needed. Jesus was baptized too. Reminds me of the story of Father Damien. Father Damien was, uh, lived uh, in the last century in the 1800s, and he went to go serve at a leper colony. We don't have leprosy so much anymore today, but back in those days, leprosy was still running rampant, and they had an actual island in Hawaii that was dedicated uh, to house all these lepers. But Father Damien went to go work with them, and I'm going to read some of his story here. He moved to the village, and for 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced the bodies no one else would touch. He preached the hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand. Can you believe that? So that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said, this island became a place to live rather than a place to die. For Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance from the lepers. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the same bowls that they ate from. He shared their pipes. He didn't wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close, and the people loved him for it. And then one day he stood up and he began his sermon with these words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them, he was one of them. One day God comes to earth and begins his message in the waters of the Jordan River. We lepers. Again, 
That's the purpose of the genealogy as well. I'll just mention quickly. It's trying to show Jesus' connection to the whole of human race, right? This suffering king really did become one of us. Jesus was baptized too. I love how one of the early church fathers says, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the suffering servant, Jesus stands in the waters of the Jordan both in solidarity with us and in substitution for us. I love that. Jesus' baptism reveals that his way is that he is for you and that he is with you. Now, How important is it that Jesus became fully human, that he became one of us? Look at what the author of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 2, and I'm just quoting different scriptures here again. These are some foundational texts. We call this the incarnation, right? Jesus becoming fully human. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. Keep going there, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Why did he have to become fully human? Why did Jesus have to get baptized too? I see four incredible things that happened because he did. If you're following on your notes there, because Jesus was baptized too, he can bring many sons and daughters to glory. Because Jesus was baptized too, we can be made holy. Remember what Isaiah 53 said? We're all like sheep. We've gone astray. But on him, God laid the iniquities of us all. Because Jesus was baptized too, this one just kills me, amazes me. He calls us brothers and sisters. Did you see that in there? He invites us into his family. Because Jesus was baptized too, he has broken the power of death. Now, I don't know what you think about on a morning like this, but as I think about Jesus' baptism, I simply stand in awe and say, aren't you glad we have a two kind of God? Aren't you glad that we have a God who is for us and who is with us? That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. As we close this morning, the question becomes, so what does this mean for us today? And while I think there's all kinds of potential application, I thought of at least two, and one of them just seemed pretty obvious to me. It's this, if Jesus got baptized and he didn't need to, what's keeping me from getting baptized? Listen, here's a person who didn't need baptism, and yet he still humbled himself and he did it. This is the same person that he would later tell his disciples, go into the whole world, Tell everybody about me and baptize those who believe. It was, of course, the practice of the early church that when somebody would profess their faith in Christ, immediately they would be baptized as a symbol of that profession of faith. In the context of Luke, I want you to think about how cool this actually is and what baptism 
symbolizes. I think Luke is trying to make this point. Again, there's no mistake that the genealogy follows the baptism here. You see, in the New Testament, the baptism is the symbol of the new covenant in Jesus Christ. All through the Bible, God is making covenants with his people, right? Intimate relationship with them. When he makes a covenant with Abraham, he gives him a sign of that covenant. Do you know what that sign was? you remember? It was circumcision. That was an outward symbol of the fact that he, they were God's chosen people. In the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the outward symbol of us being in fellowship, in covenant, in relationship with God is baptism. So in other words, just again, this is so cool, so blows my mind. When I am baptized in Christ, what it's suggesting is I can now become a part of his family line. I become a part of his genealogy. It's an outward symbol of a personal faith that the suffering king did for me what I could not do on my own. I was stuck on Adam's family line, so to speak, going down a downward spiral towards the same destiny that Adam went. But now the new Adam has come, and I can be baptized into life in him. Baptism is simply a public declaration that I'm repenting. I'm turning away from my old life of sin. I'm going to walk in obedience in the life of Christ. So here's the question for you if you're following. Have I been baptized into a covenant relationship with Jesus? I'll be very clear here. Baptism does not save a person. It is a symbol of identifying yourself with the one who fully identified with you. I want to be a part of this family. If Jesus got baptized too, I want to identify with him. I know there's always all kinds of questions about baptism. For example, what's the difference between being baptized as an infant versus being baptized as an adult? And if this is something you've been considering, you're wondering if baptism is for you, I want to seriously encourage you right now to go to our website at some point, and I want you to write down a couple of dates. Pastor Jeff spoke two great messages on this subject in 2013. Some of you remember it. One of them was on Easter. So write down these dates if this is something you need more information about or you have questions about. The dates are March 24th and March 31st, 2013. He deals with many of the questions people have. But perhaps you're here this morning. We had somebody at 8 who came up after the service. It's like, I need to take this step. And if that's you, I mentioned already in the announcements, right? Our next baptism service is coming up on February 14th. It's not too late to be a part of that wonderful celebration. Truly one of the highlights of the year for us as a church family, isn't it? To see people who want to identify with the one who identified with us. To be placed in his family line. If your kids are ready, Pastor Brian offers a great class next Saturday. You can read more about that. Second application of this text, I think, goes back to our Ephesians study that we did all last year. And it all has to do with identity. How powerful must it have been for Jesus to stand in those waters and hear these words from his father? You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God has never said that or could ever say that to any human being before Jesus. He cannot say that to flawed humanity. However, what do we learn in Ephesians? When we profess faith in Christ, we are given a new identity. The old is gone, the new has come, and part of that identity is that we become sons and daughters of the living God. And in us, God's pleasure abides eternally. In other words, 
Jesus said, because I have this relationship with God beyond which anybody has ever had before, through me, guess what? Because I was baptized too. You could have that relationship. You can become a son. You can become a daughter of the Most High God. You can be baptized into my family line and know the Father intimately and personally. Friends, until you realize that your identity is not based on the work you do for God, but is based on the work that Christ has done for you, you'll never be satisfied. As we talked about in Ephesians, you will always view yourself as a hired servant, right? I'm going to please God. I'm going I'm to do stuff for him as opposed to a son or a daughter who is already loved by God. I hear people say all the time, still today, I'm not worthy to be called God's son. I know some of you are thinking that. I'm not worthy to be called God's daughter. I deserve rejection. But what does Jesus say? You're right. But I took your rejection, I took your shame, I took your guilt, I took your sin. I stood in the waters of the Jordan River, and I was baptized too. And so now, you can hear deep down in your soul the words the Father spoke to his Son, spoken to you. You are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. And in Christ, with you I am well pleased. And I will eternally be. Have you heard that voice? Can I suggest that more than anything else, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We talked about Jesus being empowered and anointed by the Spirit. It's the same Spirit that who anoints us and empowers us. And more than anything, the Spirit wants to make our identity as children of God known to us. I hear people talk all the time today about trying to, quote, get the Holy Spirit. How small would the Holy Spirit be if we could get him? Jesus didn't get the Holy Spirit. He was filled, empowered, anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of his anointing was to identify him as the one. And in the same way, we're told that we get the Holy Spirit when it gets us. When the gospel gets us. When we profess faith in him, he anoints us, he comes into our lives, and the purpose of the Spirit is to speak identity into us. Romans 8 is so big on this, it says these words in verses 15 and 16, the Spirit you received when you professed faith in Christ does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again, rather the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him, by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit is the one who says to you, you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If you're following on your notes, we'll close with this question. Do I know and live out my identity as a beloved child of God with whom the Father is well pleased? That is the gift of the gospel. You can be given a brand new identity. You can be called Jesus' brother and his sister, according to Hebrews. And you can be called the father's son or daughter. Do you have that? Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word, which is living and breathing and active, even here among us right now. And we thank you for the amazing text we were just able to look at. That at his baptism, you revealed some pretty important things about who he was and what his purpose was. That he is your son, that he really is the conquering king, and he will one day rule and reign for all eternity. We will all fall on our knees in worship. And yet he is also the suffering servant who conquered the one enemy that none of us could conquer, the enemy of death itself. We stand back in awe and we simply praise you. We thank you. We thank you that you are the kind of God who is a two kind of God. That you stepped into the waters of the Jordan not only for us as our substitute, but in order to fully be with us. So that you might take us to glory, that you might call us sons and daughters, that you might conquer death and you might make us holy. And most amazingly, that we could be filled with the very same spirit who speaks into our souls, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So we take a moment now of reflection, just about a minute. What is the Lord saying to you, friend? What do you hear the Father's voice? As you think about Jesus' baptism, what is he saying to you? Let's take a moment and just reflect on that. Chuck and I talked about how to close the service. He showed me a song. We haven't sung for a while. And I remember singing it, and I started reading the words again. I go, this is it. We've got to sing this. We get to sing Jesus' identity back to him this morning. So I want to invite you to stand and joyfully sing about the one who was baptized too. sin who knew no sin we might become Bye. 
to pray with you if that's something you need. If God spoke to you this morning through his word and you need to respond in any way, we'd love to be available for you to pray with you, to talk to you. Maybe today you want to make Cherry Hills a part of your church home. We'd love to talk to you about what that would mean as well. For the rest of you, I want you to just go this week with a sense of joy that he is a God who is for you and he is a God who is with you. God bless you.